0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. All right, welcome everybody. I'm really pleased this week to be able to introduce um, Shahar Homieri, who's from the University of Queensland over the river. He'll be known to pretty much everyone in this room, I think either by name or, or seen his face or his suit uh, around at some point or another. And he has, I don't need to go through his academic record, extensive publication record. This is the latest book with Cambridge University Press, Fractured China, He's not quite at the moment on an ALC Future Fellowship uh, on top of. He's kind of pausing that for a moment on top of a number of other major grants. Uh, And he's been working until COVID struck on China and state transformation and so on and so forth. And that's what he's going to talk with us about today. So, yes, Shahid, it's over to you. Thank you so much, Ian, and thank you so much, everyone, for taking time. I guess there is free lunch, so that's always an incentive. But there's also the suit, so I hope between the lunch and the suit there are good reasons to be here. Now, uh, Ian mentioned the book. I've got a prop. This is the book. The designer did an amazing job. In fact, I like the book. This is a book that I'd like to be judged by its cover because I think the cover is potentially better than what's on the inside. It's actually really nicely done, and it came out late last year. Now, this copy belongs now... To Professor Hall Thank but you. I just wanted to show it to you here and as Ian mentioned this is a book that I've co-authored with long term uh, we call each other our academic spouses. Professor Lee Jones from Queen Mary University of London we've done a lot of our work together and yeah I mean as, as Ian was saying the pandemic has sort of thrown a bit of a spanner in the works and some of the things that we're hoping to be to be doing at the moment but certainly we are continuing broadly speaking with this agenda in the background even now. But what I try and do today is give you a bit of a flavor, just a bit, because you know it's a book, so there's only so much you can do of what a book is about, what we're arguing, and a little bit of the kind of empirical findings that are in the book. This presentation is going to give you a bit of a skewed sense of what a book is about because if you actually look at the book, it's about three quarters empirics, you know, kind of deep case studies that we've done, field work, etc. And only a little bit of it is what I'm going to spend most of the time talking about today because I need to be able to, to set it up for you. So I'll do a little bit of the second part but obviously there's a lot of stuff there that I can't really get into. So with that let me just start off with a vignette and the vignette is about Chinese relations with North Korea. Now this case study is not actually developed in the book in particular but I think it's a kind of a nice way into the subject. So what we're seeing in China's relations to North Korea are a number of, if you like, kind of conflicting signals going on at the same time. On the one hand, as North Korea was developing its nuclear arms program, we see Beijing tightening restrictions on, on North Korea, doing a whole range of different things, but quite substantial things as well. So, for instance, North Korea is not part of the Belt and Road Initiative. It is not part of the Asian Investment Infrastructure Investment Bank. So there are some pretty significant steps taken there by the uh, Chinese government. But at the same time, we see that investment from China in North Korea actually rises quite substantially. So we've got some numbers there from 1.1 million to around 110 million from 2003 to 2012, even more later on from 2013 to 2017. We also see that North Korea's apparel exports... Have actually kind of been integrated into supply chains with that part of, of China in the northeast, growing from 186 million to nearly 800 million 2015. Most of it are exports to China, and we also find that even though there are meant to be sanctions in place, we find local authorities kind of easing tourism and trade restrictions periodically, and then sometimes tightening them after getting some pushback from the government. You know, the fact that these other activities are happening at the same time as Beijing is claiming to be sanctioning North Korea has led to, um, certainly, Donald Trump, when he was US President, to blast China for undermining UN sanctions on North Korea, basically saying that China is being disingenuous. This case is actually not unusual at all. People have pointed out that China often behaves in an inconsistent manner in international politics. Someone called it consistently inconsistent international behaviour. The problem that international relations as a field has with understanding that, certainly in the the context of the rising powers debate, is that it starts from the assumption that China is a unitary actor in international politics. So there is China, and China does things, okay? It does it as a unitary actor. And because of that assumption, evidence for consistently inconsistent behavior or any form of inconsistent behavior tends to get shoehorned. It tends to lead scholars, depending on what they prefer, what is their kind of chosen approach, realist, liberal, whatever it may be, to focus on the evidence that supports their claims and ignore the evidence that doesn't support their claims, or at the very least try to justify it in terms that work within their frameworks. So, for instance, if we look at this particular case of North Korea and China, we find that realists, for instance, talk about the gap between the formal commitments the Chinese government's made and reality Uh, as being shaped by China's grand strategy, and they're likely to talk about things like China's preference for having a buffer state between itself and American forces in South Korea, and so on and so forth. Liberals, on the other hand, would likely tend to play up, generally, Chinese cooperation, and and would tend to emphasise those behaviours as being more significant than other instances. So the debate, essentially, and this is a long-term problem that... Manifests again and again. It, it tends to kind of it's kind of stalled, and it's become highly speculative. And what we mean by that is that instead of talking about what China is actually doing and trying to explain that, the debate has become about what China will do and will become in the in, in the future. Now we all know that the future is the graveyard of reputation, and predictions are difficult, especially the future. So therefore, this is a, basically a kind of what's the word that we use in uh, technical terms. Forget the term now. Anyway, so it cannot be proven either way. So if you talk about the future, basically you can make any claim you like and and there's no way of of testing that. So that's sort of what got us into this project. Now if you look at that particular case and you do a deeper dive as some people have done, you find that Chinese non-compliance with sanctions on North Korea is actually driven largely from below by firms and provincial governments that are close geographically to North Korea and that Beijing has been largely reactive to those moves. So they have certain incentives to operate in North Korea, and sometimes they do that either under the radar or they interpret certain things that the Chinese government is saying in ways that support their interests, and Beijing has reacted to that and in many cases did reimpose the sanctions in a more stringent way. So the argument that we make in this time in front of you here is right there on the screen, and the argument is actually really quite simple when it comes down to it. We are saying that China's international behaviour is often consistent or even contradictory because China is no longer, to the extent that it ever was, a unitary actor in international politics. And we continue to argue to say that decades of state transformation, which I'll explain to you in just a moment, have actually brought us to a point where there are a whole range of Chinese actors, different kinds of actors, operating with considerable autonomy internationally and with limited coordination and oversight. And that often tends to produce outcomes that do not necessarily reflect top leaders' agenda, which may in many cases be themselves be unclear. So that is the argument of the book in a nutshell, uh, and everything that I'm going to be doing from now on will be to elaborate this particular argument. Another observation that drew us into this study, and I think this is where we're starting from, is that there is a very large gap between Synology or China studies on the one hand and International Relations Studies of China on the other. And the gap has been bridged to a small extent, but it's still very substantial. So on the one hand of things, on, on the Synology side of things, on the left-hand side, you have studies where the idea that China is not a unitary state is kind of taken for granted, if you like. It's, it's taken as a given that you know, fragmented authoritarianism, whatever the framework is that is being used by the scholars. When we presented this work to people who are China experts, a lot of the time, and many people here will probably say, oh, course you know we know this we've known this for a long time you know and then on the other hand you've got the IR studies where the emphasis is on grand strategy strategy and and the assumption is that China is obviously a unitary actor. In the book we came up with what we call Schrodinger's China which is simultaneously obviously unified and simultaneously obviously fragmented depending on who you talk to and we're trying to bridge the gap here. Now I think that Some of the more recent books in in IR that we've seen come out about this very issue reinforce the same idea, and some of them take it really quite far. So, Michael Pillsbury's book, The Hundred Year Marathon, claims that China has a hundred year plan to replace America as a global superpower. And, you know, I mean, people who have studied the way the Chinese state operates, I think, would struggle to find that persuasive, but nonetheless, this is the gap that exists. So why is this disconnect between people who are actually experts on China and related area studies and the IR field? I think that, in part, it reflects just typical academic silos. We know that academia, it's like, you know, you're sort of like flying over a field and there's campfires and people telling stories to each other, but they don't even know that the other ones are around. So that's kind of how I imagine academia to be. And unfortunately, that's how it is. And many sinologists engage very little with IR and vice versa, uh, because... Let's face it, it's a massive field. I mean, China studies is massive enough in itself to have a terrific career without ever having to engage with scholars. And additionally, because of the fact that people often come from an area studies background, depending on what the disciplinary preferences are, they often also tend to treat what's happening in a particular country in a kind of sweet, generous way. You know, so what's happening in China is unique to China or Indonesia or whatever it is you're studying, Latin America. And there's not a lot of comparative analysis going on of what's happening in China and what's happening elsewhere. Additionally, we also argue in the book there is lack of good theory in IR that sinologists can hold on to in order to communicate their findings to IR in a good way. So we, for instance, think that frameworks like foreign policy analysis or bureaucratic politics, which would be the closest ones that exist, for this purpose, have some serious weaknesses. And therefore, when sinologists have tried to do that, they've reached the limits of these approaches pretty quickly. On the other side in international relations, I mentioned before the strong unitary actor assumptions that pervade IR, pervade the rising powers debate. So even IR scholars that recognise that, say, European states are not how they used to be in the 60s or something like that, they would still argue that rising power states are essentially these kinds of Westphalian leviathans, you know, essentially operating in the way that, uh, you know, kind of old-school barbarian state theory would assume. And also... As I mentioned before, the theory that tries to tie the domestic to the international, notably foreign policy analysis, is relatively weakly developed and takes relatively little account of fragmentation. And where you see that in particular, and this is something that I think for us is the biggest limitation, is this idea that even though there might be a recognition of some fragmentation and contestation happening internally within China, there is still an assumption of a decision moment. So it's all resolved into a certain kind of decision, and then that is what you see outside of China. So there might be some conflict going on here, and then, I don't know, someone wins, and then what you see outside of China is basically a single voice. We find that to be problematic for reasons that hopefully the book demonstrates. So what we're doing is uh, what we call the state transformation approach. Those who know me would know that uh, I've been pushing that for a while now in various guises. And this starts from a different foundation. It starts from what we call Gramscian state theory, or whatever you call it, essentially we're talking about the idea of the state being a power relation reflecting unequal and contested relation between different social forces in society. And the way that state institutions operate tends to reflect contestations between social forces and the dominance of certain ones over others. Now, that is historically specific. It tends to shift depending on the particular dynamics in each state and in different historical periods. One of the advantages of using this approach is that it does not assume the unitary nature of the state, and it can account for the fact, as we see in China, that different fractions or different interests may dominate different parts of the state, and therefore states might act in ways that are not necessarily consistent. Now, state transformation as a phenomenon has been relatively general around the world since the 1970s. Maybe we are at a point now where it's shifting again, and this is something that I'd love to pick up in the Q&A if people are interested in talking about that. But essentially, as the political economy has shifted with globalisation, found, generally speaking, states going through processes of fragmentation and uneven internationalisation. And I'll talk about what that means in the Chinese context. But in China specifically, what we see is a shift from the kind of autarkic Maoism under Mao, which directed China inwards and attempted to assert central controls over basically what every part of the Chinese state was doing, certainly when it comes to foreign policy, We find that the shift to capitalism has changed basically the social foundation of the regime, shifting it from workers and peasants to what we call the cadre capitalist class, which is fractious and fragmented, and different pockets of it may contest each other depending on the province or wherever they are based. And that has led to processes of fragmentation, decentralization, and internationalization of China's party state, which are at the center of this transformation process. So, fragmentation talks about, if you like, a kind of the emergence of overlapping authority within the state, depending, not necessarily at the same level, but essentially you see, for instance, multiple agencies responsible for the same policy domain, and often with very unclear relationships between them, and often operating with considerable independence from each other and with relatively little coordination. Decentralization talks about the rise of especially provincial governments as very substantial players, especially when it comes to economic policy making, not just, but especially that. Operating again with considerable autonomy. And finally internationalization is when these dynamics of fragmentation and decentralization interact with internationalization. That's when we get fragmented foreign policy making and implementation. So what that means in practice is a lot of time agencies that emerge with a domestic focus find themselves in an international context. So, for example, provincial governments now sign agreements in different parts of the world and and run all sorts of programs, usually with considerable independence from what the central government does. State-owned enterprises, again, were established initially as arms of government to perform certain tasks, and we know that increasingly they've internationalised quite substantially the people in this room that have written about this and operating obviously with varying degrees of operational independence, but often with relatively little control from the centre on the ground in the countries where they work. And there are many examples like that, also with regulatory agencies and so on. So because of these processes, we find that the Chinese party state does not speak with one voice internationally because there's a whole range of different actors doing different things and they don't always have the same interests. So the question that we're interested in when it comes to the state transformation approach is about how power is exercised in this party state. How does it actually work? So we try to move away from binary framings of this issue. You may find in the literature people arguing whether the centre remains as powerful as it was or whether the fragmentation of the party state and all these other dynamics I was talking about led to you know, a more fragmented, decentralised party state. We're not really interested in that because the dynamics that we talk about obviously are quite uneven, but what we're interested in in explaining is how power is exercised. We're not interested in determining whether it is central or fragmented because actually we see all of these dynamics playing out in in different uh, policy areas. So to that extent, we developed what we call a model for understanding how the Chinese party state operates, especially in foreign policy, which we call the Chinese-style regulatory state. There's a very large literature on the regulatory state, I'm sure people here know, but essentially the way we're arguing that the party state operates today is less through command and control type forms of coordination and action and more in regulatory forms where the centre uses a variety of regulatory mechanisms to try and coordinate and cohere the way that the wider party state works and then the responses from those that it tries to coordinate and cohere that shape in practice what happens on the ground. So the regulatory mechanisms that attempt to establish coherence in how the party-state works that are available to the centre are really important and we absolutely do not argue in this paper, and I want to make that point clear, we do not argue that the centre in China is in any way weak, but we argue that this is how it governs. So one of them is party ideology and various campaigns, trying to cohere how people think. Okay, That's a kind of very big picture form of coordination. Another one is senior leader leaders' statements and slogans. We've seen that, you know, for instance, with the Belt and Road Initiative. A lot of the time the detail around these is fairly scant in reality. The government and the party may lead a small group, LSGs and various commissions to try and coordinate how different parts of the party state work. And also, of course, the centre has considerable control over laws, regulations and funding, which it can use to try and cohere everybody else. But probably the most important element of CCP power is the powers of appointment, appraisal, and probably most important of those is discipline. So when people go off-piece a little bit too much, they can actually be put away for a very long time indeed, or worse. So all of these elements actually do give the centre considerable power, but they're not perfect. They absolutely don't work all the time in every area. Now there are also responses to these coordinating mechanisms from below and sometimes these responses, if you like, anticipate some of the projects. So we talk about the three I's there. One of them is influencing. So this is kind of lobbying of senior uh, leaders or agencies to try and get certain interests manifest in official policy. Probably the most important one of the three is interpreting which is when actors, given the relatively vague and loose nature of a lot of the statements that come down from the top, claim to be implementing what the leadership wants, but in reality they push forward their own interests. And that often leads to very different forms of behaviour, all of which are justified in relation to the exact same statement or policy document. And I would argue that's probably the most important of the three in practice. And the, and the last one, we know it exists, but obviously you know, it could be a hazard to one's health, is ignoring, which is when agencies around the wider party state just ignore what the leadership said and try to get away with it. Quite a literature on this, probably a bit more dangerous now under the current leadership, but it still does happen. So how the Chinese party state behaves in particular policy areas, therefore it reflects ongoing contestation within this context. Okay. We used the metaphor of a tug of war, but we took it out of the book because one of the reviews didn't like it, but maybe it's a useful way of thinking about it. There's a kind of ongoing process where the leadership is trying to cohere and others are trying to respond to it in various ways and what emerges in practice is what we're seeing in our case studies. We can probably skip this point pretty quickly, but one of the issues we try to tackle in the book is whether China can do grand strategy, given our analysis. And we argue that given how we understand the Chinese party state to operate and given how grand strategy is understood in IR, then in most areas, you'd argue that it does not actually operate to a grand strategy, but I'll leave that because that's a relatively marginal point to what I'm trying to talk about now. The final element of our analysis is that given our understanding of how states work, given our state theory, we're not just interested in what happens in China, okay, how the Chinese state operates. We're also interested in how these dynamics of the Chinese party state then interact with different states and societies. And that's what gives us outcomes in many of the cases that we look at. So we're doing a fairly similar kind of analysis. We're identifying the key actors, the interests and agendas, using the same sort of analysis. And then we try to trace empirically how these dynamics then relate to what Chinese actors are doing and to what outcomes. And that's what I'm going to show to you in a moment with a very short snippet of the kinds of analysis that we have in the book. I mentioned at the top of the uh, talk that the book is mostly an empirical study. And I have about 10 minutes now, I think, to talk about what is most of the book. The book basically goes from the South China Sea, which is a, if you like, hard security case study. We thought that in order to make the argument compelling for an RR audience, we needed to go from what they call high politics to low politics, which is a definition that I don't particularly like, but anyway, in IR people would use it. And therefore, if we just ignored all cases of quote-unquote hard security, then we'll be easily dismissed. So we applied the framework to the South China Sea. That's Chapter 2. Chapter 3 looks at, if you like, soft security, non-traditional security, cooperation and engagement in the Greater Mekong subregion, as it's called, so to China's southwest. And finally, we have an international development financing case study, which especially looks at hydropower dam construction in also the Mekong sub-region countries in Cambodia and in Myanmar, and that also links up with the Belt and Road Initiative, which is another area that Lee and I have been writing about for the last few years. So today, like I said, a very short snippet of one case study. It's actually a third of one chapter, what I'm going to talk about now. Because in this chapter on non-traditional security, we're interested in how China or Chinese actors have engaged in the so-called Golden Triangle region in order to address issues of drug trafficking into China. But we also spend some time talking about their attempt to curb what they call riverine banditry. Piracy doesn't apply legally for rivers, so it's not piracy, it's riverine banditry. So that's one third. Now, within... The case study of counter-narcotics control within the Golden Triangle region, we have the case studies of northern Laos and Myanmar, but I'm only going to talk about Myanmar here because I don't have time to do the other one. So again, if you want to read the book, there's a lot of stuff in there, lots of interviews and all sorts of findings, but I'm just going to do a little bit here. So the first thing to say before we delve into our own analysis is how the kind of general literatures looked at this particular issue So the conventional narrative essentially goes something like this. Opium, heroin, and increasingly amphetamine-type stimulants, like meth, essentially have been construed by the Chinese government as a transnational security threat to China. They have been, in the language of IR, securitized. And a lot of people would point out that China has always had a very difficult, for obvious reasons, relationship with drugs, going back to the opium wars and what that did to China. So... When Mao came to power, he basically either killed or arrested pretty much all drug users and traffickers and, in a sense, eliminated the drugs problem in China, also by closing the border to the Golden Triangle region. But from the 1980s, as China began to reopen, obviously the drugs came back. So the official narrative is that then it's been securitized. Hu Jintao, when he was president, when he was leader in the 2000s, declared the People's War on Drugs. And then China rolled out an opium substitution program, which is our focus for the case study, in drug-producing regions of neighbouring countries, namely Myanmar and Laos. Now, China has also participated actively in UNODC, United Nations Office of Drug and Crime, MOU, in the Mekong on Drugs Control and incorporated the United Nations principles on alternative development into how it supposedly does opium substitution in the region. So the existing literature basically talks about relative success of those operations, something that I will be challenging in a moment, and it's easy to explain from either a realist or a liberal perspective. So if you're a realist, you would say, well, here we have a great power, there's a transnational threat, it declares it a threat, it does something about it, neighbouring states are weaker states, they cooperate, success simple you know liberals would say well you know China is engaging in the world you know it's kind of this is a shared security threat it affects everybody there's cooperation there's the MOU United Nations framework everyone's cooperating it works right that's kind of the conventional narrative in kind of kindergarten form okay I apologize to the people who've written they're better than that but this is just a shorthand version but we apply state transformation analysis as we do in the book and that gets us somewhere else so the first thing is to say is the OSBs, or the Opium Substitution Programs, are actually evidence of very, very bottom-up influencing that reflects the decentralization of China. So the origins of this program are actually with a particular county near the border in Yunnan Province in the 1990s that began to implement that across the border, and then that county managed to raise it up to the level of the province, and then Yunnan Province got behind it and they did it for a time on its own uh, across the border, And then later on, it lobbied the central government and it became a national program. So it actually started from the bottom up. And it reflects the dynamics of decentralization, especially the fact that Yunnan became the lead province in, for a time at least, managing China's relations with Southeast Asia, especially the countries of the greater Mekong sub-region. Other dynamics of state transformation are that national drug policy making has, has been heavily fragmented. What we see is that at the very least 41 agencies... Involved in policy making and implementation in this area. Some frameworks are led by the Ministry of Public Security or MPS, and they're the ones that engage with the United Nations processes. So they're the ones that sign up to the uh, United Nations UNIDC framework and all the rest of it. And so they're taking part in, they're leading that part of things. But for the opium substitution program, which is a very large part of China's counter narcotics activity in that region, actually. There is another body, 21 different agencies involved in that, led by the Ministry of Commerce, not the Ministry of Public Security, and that is a regulatory mechanism for the opium substitution programs. That mechanism is a very typical regulatory state mechanism. It sets very, very broad targets, and the targets that he sets are actually targets in terms of acres of different crops planted. So that doesn't tell us much about what happened to opium, but it tells us a lot about how many acres of another crop are planted, and that reflects the very commercial orientation of this particular group. Additionally, given that it works in complete isolation from the other one that's led by the Ministry of Public Security, the United Nations principles basically completely neglected by this particular group. So this is the national level, but then implementation again is fragmented and disconnected even from that. So implementation was decentralized to the UNAN Department of Commerce, And in China, there are no direct line relations between what happens here and what happens there, so they kind of do their own thing. And naturally, they've interpreted what that means in practice around the dominant business interests that are affiliated with Yunnan province, and meanwhile, also completely ignored the Ministry of Public Security and the United Nations guidelines that it signed up to. So essentially, what we see is opium substitution program hijacked by cadre capitalists based in Yunnan province. And the program's implementation has been run by, in reality, state-owned companies or largely private companies that used to be state-owned companies, especially in the rubber sector, that internationalized into the greater Mekong sub-region in order to basically implement it on the ground. I'll get into that a little bit in a second, but... Because of that, it's perhaps not surprising to find out the commercial interests actually trump the strategic ones in this case, and we see that the kind of crops that were selected and where these crops were placed actually reflect the the commercial interest of these companies and have very little to do with opium substitution whatsoever. So just very basic things will tell you that because opium grows largely between 800 and 1,800 metres above sea level. Rubber grows at lower altitudes, so they don't actually replace each other. You know, the rubber cannot replace opium. In the United Nations when it implements the UNODC, when it implements its own programme and I went and spoke to them, they offer things like coffee or you know things that actually grow in, in the same altitudes. But this has got nothing to do with it, I'm telling you now. Outcomes again reflect, as I said before, the intersection of Chinese actors that their interests, and we talked about which actors we we're talking about here, and the interests and in agendas of those in the recipient states. And there are different outcomes in Laos and Myanmar, although they're not as different as perhaps it seemed initially, but there were some differences, but I'm only going to talk about Myanmar. The relevant context in Myanmar is the one of long-running civil wars in the borderlands, some of the longest-running civil wars in the world, and the ethnic armed groups, or the AGs, that dominate many of these regions. So at some point, the junta and the military associated with it decided to embark on a strategy of ceasefire capitalism where they would sign agreements with the ethnic armed groups and they would say, well, you know, if you agree to cooperate with us and stop fighting us, we're going to give you some autonomy in your regions and you can profit and you, you, know, you can do well. And investment from Thailand and China played a big part in that ceasefire capitalism. So what we see in a lot of these border regions in Myanmar essentially is alliances forming between ethnic armed groups and Chinese agribusiness and the military in many cases that involve often land grabbing, forced displacement of local populations, forced labour and so on, all in violations of the United Nations principle to which Ministry of Public Security committed China, supposedly. And in reality, because of these plantations essentially being the work of these relatively narrow interests, we find that a narrow elite profits handsomely from these, especially the agribusiness companies involved, but opium cultivation actually has risen in China rather than it's gone backwards. And because of the fact that the projects are selected through the agency of companies talking to local elites, involved in the military often, all these kinds of coalitions emerging on the ground, what happens actually is a reflection of the coalitions that are formed in particular contexts. So there can be some places that are a little bit better than others, but often they are you know as, as we said they 're h- highly predatory and really quite awful you know in their impact on local population now, to show you what that looks like in practice, we have some figures there in the uh, in the charts about essentially the opium substitution program and in figure three point one it 's opium production in, in Myanmar, and you can see that opium production in Myanmar actually decreased before the implementation of the OSB and that was because of the uh, various agreements that were signed between the military and local elites and sometimes the way in which the military (coughs) managed to stop local armed groups from continuing to produce opium, but it's risen. (laughs) Not quite to the same heights as back in the uh, heady days of the early uh, 1990s, but it has risen following the implementation of the uh, OSP. Likewise, if you look at figures of narcotics seized by Chinese authorities, we also find an increase. So, Looking at these two figures, it would seem that the opium substitution program has not achieved its goals. In fact, it's had the opposite effect in terms of opium in that part of the world. Now, there's lots more I can say about that, but I'm just conscious of time. So these problems have been ongoing after Xi Jinping took power. This is an argument that we often get, that everything changed after Xi came to power. We spend about six pages in the book actually pushing back on that argument, but I'm going to leave that to the Q&A if you like. But we showed that essentially the same kind of dynamics are still at play, certainly when it comes to those kinds of relationships. Although rubber itself has experienced a bust in around 2011, which had an impact on rubber plantations, we find other boom crops replacing it and very similar dynamics at play. So the main one in the time that we're doing the research was bananas. That was the new boom crop. A lot of the ways in which bananas were cultivated in Laos and Myanmar was just awful, you know, lots of very seriously bad chemicals with very little protection for the people involved, so cancer rates going right up, soil degradation, etc, etc, happening. And at the same time, amphetamine type stimulant trafficking has been booming as well, completely, you know, beside all this other work that was going on supposedly to stop the drug trade. So what we argue here, I guess, is that this is not a success, unlike what a lot of the literature would suggest, but, and also what has actually happened is not easily explained using these kind of IR perspectives, but it is explicable using the state transformation approach. And with that, I will finish here, and, and yeah, that's it for me. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.